John? Hey, Carl, I'm very sorry. Uh, Anchor required me to um, uh, go through some loops and- uh, Yeah, sometimes there are some technical difficulties or complications. Here we are and you're coming in loud and clear. Well, that's so are you. Uh, I'm welcoming uh, John Bryant to my podcast, A Life in Biography. John, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how you got interested in Herman Melville? Well, uh, I guess the best thing to say is uh, um, I'm a, a, a have been a Melville scholar since um, since soon after graduate school, um, and that takes back to the 1900s and 1975. And um, I always had um, <clears throat> a deep interest in in Melville, but basically thought it was uh, so titanic a subject to study that I simply wasn't worthy. So um, uh, it took me a couple of years to get to get over over that. A lot of encouragement from from mentors and uh, uh, and colleagues, and um, uh, I, I think also the 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 other uh, leap for me was I always had a kind of uh, fascination with biography, but as uh, many literary biographers might. Uh, complain, yourself included, Carl, yeah, um, yes. and very eloquently, I might add, um, the, the, the genre of biography, that, that seemed to be the big hump. I wanted to write uh, from decades ago um, the, the story of Melville's life, but not so much the, the mere chronology of his events, which is kind of lopsided, to tell you the truth. Um, but uh, uh, how this person got to be um, such a compelling, damn good writer. I mean, uh, to follow his shortest sentence, call me Ishmael, is, 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 is almost a lifetime of, of thinking. Yes, yes. But then, but then uh, his oceanic style, uh, and of course, I'm just speaking of Moby Dick uh, right at the moment, but um, also in in all of his other writings that most people don't know as much about. Um, how did how did he get the 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 uh, awareness, not just the talent, but the awareness that he could put sentences together like that? So I, I really wanted to to know how uh, how this happened, but the big hurdle it seemed to me was that uh, most Melville biographies, I would say all actually, and, and maybe this is the case of a lot of literary biography, basically began with the premise that Herman Melville was a genius, um, and in some cases a, a thwarted genius, um, a, a genius that was kept back by um, a culture that was not ready for him and didn't quite understand him, that family was not supportive and so on, and that he, uh, or that he, uh, other kinds of um, what I would call hurdles um, to understanding the person as um, as an everyday person, that, that, that he had some gifts, of course, but he had a lot of encouragement and he had a lot of, of uh, family support. And, uh, and how did how did all of these things kind of come together? Sure. sure. 
So that's sort of like the focus of of the biography, which I think is uh, kind of departs from the uh, traditions of of Melville biography, which are no different, I think, than the traditions of standard literary biography. That's right. right. I think think that... um, your, your biography, in a sense, is, is, like all biographies, very much of the moment. That is, it's certainly about the past, but it's also about the present. Uh-huh. Um, and what strikes me about your the first two volumes of your Melville biography is your sense of context, your sense of family. It's something that I was determined to get into my William Faulkner biography, too. And, and you, you, you do, you do, right from the start. Yeah, that's what I try to do. And I think that almost inevitably, when you when you widen out the context, you either write a very long one volume biography, the way that Heather Clark has done with Sylvia Plath, mm. or you 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 get into multi volumes because you have to do justice to whether it's family members or friends or the cultural context. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. other thing you mentioned uh, that interests me about your biography, you talked about, you know, treating Melville as a genius that often does cut out other people. And I think when I say your biography is of the times, I think biographers have become much more conscious of the wives or the sisters or the brothers or other close friends who are really part of the making of that writer. It doesn't take anything away from the writer. And you can even call the writer a genius if you want, but there is this incredible context um, and the, the the times in which the writer lives that that have to be incorporated into the biography. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow, Carl, you always stun me. Uh, well, you don't stun me because I'm I'm used to it from you. But you always, <laughs> it's always so stimulating to hear your 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 thoughts on 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 biography and uh, on everything, but. Um, yeah, so uh, I, the, the, let's start with the idea of genius. I think that's just a conversation stopper. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a genius, so yes, he wrote that. So why why do we we all agree that he's a genius? So why should we take time in a biography just to um, have a huge block quote uh, that fills you know half a page and um, and just let readers swim through the uh, the language and um uh, because you just have to ask yourself well how did that happen how did that come about well if you look into uh, melville's growth as a student as a as from schoolboy to young adulthood i found that um a lot of biographers would just sort of say well he went to this school and he went to that school i started looking up that school uh, those schools um, and uh, and I started looking into his siblings, who were every much as as articulate as he he was, and even even the least articulate would complain about himself. This this would be Alan Jr., um, Melville's younger brother, uh, would complain about his own lack of poetic ability in comparison to his sister Augusta and his sister Helena, and of course his older brother Yanzevord, who, um, who was this uh, major political orator of the, of the uh, early 1840s. So I, I was looking into these and I think one of the contributions of this biography is that I've, I spent a good chunk of, uh, of volume one um, giving little sub-biographies of each of uh, 
each of the siblings. Um, and uh, I mean, they're, they're, they don't uh, overwhelm biography, but they're not distractions either because they were basically all sitting in the same parlor going off to their separate schools, the, the female Albany Academy or the Lansingburg Academy and places right up there in, in upstate New York. And, but they would all come home and to do their homework and do their assignments and to write compositions. And um, we have a lot of compositions that Augusta wrote as a teenage girl. And I, uh, I, I think, well, this is a treasure trove of family, uh, of, of how the family talked to each other and how they articulated. And if you take a look at Augusta's uh, compositions when she was, you know, 16 and, uh, and Herman was uh, 17 or 18. Um, she was writing just as promisingly as, um, as Melville became, came to be. And if you look at uh, Gansevoort's uh, stump speeches that he gave, his orations, uh, you, you, you see these sifting into, into Melville's style. And then Helen, oh my God, she was this older sister who was um, um, had uh, a, 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 a lame. She had hip dysplasia, so she was lame. Does that sound like a little bit of uh, of Ahab? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and uh, but she had this vibrant personality. Her her father said she's too giddy, which of course is something you kind of want to stay away from regarding the characterization of of girls and of. Uh, uh, of, of women, um, but, um, and that it was a characterization when she was, you know, when she was like 10, but, but uh, uh, she's just a, a wealth of, uh, of, of insights into what's going on in the family. Yeah, what you say about her reminds me of a, a reviewed recently a Mozart biography, and the biographer spends uh, quite a bit of time on Mozart's sister. And in fact, Mozart's encouraging her to compose. She didn't seem particularly interested in, in, interested in composing, but she had a tremendous impact on him. So, of course, the biographer has to deal with that. Yeah. Well, of course, I have the, uh, these um, sad blinders on me that, that you don't have, Carl, and that is, um, you've studied biography more than anybody else I know and have studied it seriously. Um, and it's recorded in more books than I have read, but the ones that I have read of your work, including your, um, your, your Faulkner biography, which, which I have not yet finished, but which I really love, Thank um, you. really gets us um, uh, into... Um, uh, well, my perspective is I'm, I wrote this biography without wanting to read too many other biographies. You know what I'm talking about? Sure. Mm -hmm. There's a problem with that when, um, and when I'm at my blinders is that I, I don't have the breadth of, of knowledge that you have about other biographers and bi other biographies. I, I know pretty much what uh, uh, the ones that I've read and uh, felt well. Gee, I, I I think we're missing the point. So I've I've proceeded with with these kinds of Melville blinders on. Of course, I've read Hawthorne biographies and Poe biographies and Longfellow biographies and so on and so forth. But I've tried to write my biography without spending too much time taking notes from previous <laughs> Melville biographies because I don't want 
to unconsciously um, end up quoting uh, ideas or even words that come from other biographies. I, I don't know, uh, have, have you uh, uh, dealt with this problem before? And I think, by the way, um, Faulkner biography is, um, um, there are far more uh, Faulkner biographies to contend with than there are Melville biographies. Well, um, it, it's a problem that biographers speak of often. That is, they, they, they make a big deal out of, as they should, that they're dealing with primary sources more than they are secondary sources. And therefore, that allows them to say, you know, I'm not just repeating what some other biographer said. I think yeah. that's true. I think if you're a professional biographer like me, uh, or maybe I should just speak for myself, uh, I guess I'm so arrogant. I, I operate under the illusion that I have this story to tell about my subject. And therefore, actually, it's not that difficult for me to read other, say, Faulkner biographies in this case mm -hmm. and, and, and say to myself quite smugly, well, that's not quite right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I have another angle on that, which the reader's going to learn about. Mm -hmm. I mean, the difficulty comes in, and, and biographies have been written this way. There's one uh, uh, biography of Thomas Hardy where the biographer sets out to attack the other, you know, the other biographers to, you know, to, to justify it, to say, well, yeah. this is why yeah. mine is so much better. Well, yeah. most readers don't have patience with that. It's kind of amusing, yeah. really. Yeah. Uh, but for some people, it's extremely irritating. Well, I think that's a, that, that is a, a, another side of, the, of this coin. And that is that um, um, you don't want to get into pissing fights yeah. uh, with other biographers. And I pretty much kept myself from doing that, um, uh, in part because uh, the my uh, 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 predecessors um, uh, have themselves major reputations, um, and their books have uh, a major presence. Um, a lot, for instance, a, a Melville biography sort of emerged professionally in, in 1950. And then there was just 50 years of biographical silence until um, uh, um, Parker's biography came out around the turn of the century, uh, the, uh, the 19th, 20th, uh, the 20th and 21st century. And um, uh, I, there is a lot of uh, data in that biography. Uh, it's also two volumes. Yes, um, but um, almost no serious interaction with the, the literary text, and I felt immediately the need to uh, compensate for that. Right. Um, at, at the same time, um, I, I came across one uh, moment in the biography where I I just rattled off how everybody had missed uh, Augusta, and, mm -hmm. and I had a little paragraph that I had written that basically said, well, they missed it in 1950 and they missed it in, uh, in, uh, in 1996 and they missed it in 2005 and, and, uh, uh, you know, and just said, you know, and, and, and this biographer gave uh, one line to this and then this biographer two lines and this, this biographer, no, no reference to, to the Augusta compositions that so, so clearly influenced Melville. And, uh, 
and, and then, but I am spending, you know, three paragraphs, <laughs> you know, I mean, a, a whole section with, with yeah. multiple paragraphs, uh, multiple chapters. And uh, uh, my wife, Jenny Blanford, you know, who <laughs> is a saving grace for me in many ways, not just the biography, said, you know, you don't need this. You just, you, you know, just cut this paragraph. And so uh, I, I cut it immediately. And um, and you just don't want to have to get into that. Yeah. Kind of, uh, the other way you can handle that is, is, is you could, could put, put it in, in a note. note. Uh, <laughs> and sneak it by my wife? I don't think so. <laughs> nice try, I, I can't sneak anything by, yeah. by my wife either. Yeah, no, no. I, uh, they probably would have lots of stories to tell each other about uh, having there's, some of the... There's one other person, and this, this struck home with me because of some of my biographical work, and that is Melville's father, yes. who also had a literary sensibility. But the other thing about him, in a sense, was for his time, he was a world traveler. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really struck home with me because in my Rebecca West biography, for, for example, she essentially says about her father, who dies when she's very young, that he brought history home to the family. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's something of that in Melville's father. Absolutely. Too. Absolutely. Um, um, Melville's father, Alan Melville, um, uh, was a Bostonian, and um, he and his brother Thomas, uh, um, well, their father basically sent them off to Europe um, to to arrange business deals in France and in England and in Scotland. And, and Alan continued um, uh, from his late adolescence on into young manhood, uh, traveling in um, mostly in France, he met he met Lafayette um, and um, um, his uh, his brother Thomas's first wife was herself French. Uh, and um, but by 1814, um, they all came back, uh, having absorbed in a tremendous amount of European history and French culture. And um, Alan spoke French in in um, in the family, and uh, Melville's mother, who was a homegrown, never traveled um, except between Albany and, and Manhattan, uh, was from an upstate Dutch family, the Gansevoort family, and she she spoke um, with a little bit of awareness of, of Dutch, and and so uh, the Melville kids. Um, really grew up in uh, in in a, in a pretty cosmopolitan family, and I think that's a, a major strand in Melville's sensibility, or what I call his multi-stranded consciousness, this yes. notion of, of cosmopolitanism, and it, um, and for Melville it wasn't only the history of it, um, but also uh, uh, art, uh, artworks. Uh, Alan brought back um, prints, engravings of famous artworks, and that became the nucleus of a larger uh, pattern of collecting that Melville did in, in adulthood. He, he amassed, by the end of his life, a collection of, a, of over 400 art prints, which are uh, in various libraries 
and, and personal collections, some family collections, but not, not spread out too much. And uh, a very excellent Melville scholar, Robert K. Wallace, has been studying these for, um, uh, a, a, for a lifetime. And um, I'm, I'm working with him now to have these digitized and put into the Melville Electronic Library, which I, I'm the, of which I am the director. And we get a clearer sense of, of Melville's absorption into art and aesthetics and uh, uh, through these concrete um, engravings, the, how he chose to, to collect, I think goes, goes back to his, to his father. Now, you know, um, sadly, or maybe we might even say for the, for the sake of American literature, happily, <laughs> Melville's father, Alan, died uh, when Melville was 12 and a half. Um, and it was a kind of traumatic uh, uh, death because uh, he, um, uh, two years previously, he had gone bankrupt. They had moved from uh, New York City, uh, where, where Melville spent, had spent his boyhood, and came up to Albany to live with uh, the Gansevoort family side of, of Melville's, uh, you know, with his grandmother and, and uncle and so on in, in Albany. And, and you can imagine a Manhattanite having to uh, move to Albany would be traumatic enough. But, mm. um, but uh, and, and that's true even today. But uh, uh, actually, I, I kind of like Albany. But um, uh, there was the, the bankruptcy and, and all of this uh, that tore up, the, that didn't tear up the family. They became very close, but uprooted the family. And uh, uh, and then uh, in trying to deal with all of this, Melville's father went back down to Manhattan to meet with lawyers and try to settle his finances. Uh, he had literally escaped Manhattan to avoid debt, uh, his creditors. And so uh, he was trying to make good. Um, he, he came back up north um, uh, during the dead of winter, um, got overexposed. Um, some kind of fever got launched in his brain. For two weeks in early January of 1832, he was literally raving in the bedroom upstairs. And um, all of this was, was quite a tra traumatic death. Um, so, uh, and we see evidence of, of this sense of fatherlessness in all throughout Melville's writing, it's it's just everywhere. Not, how do we get Dick, you know, Pierre and so on? How do we get from that that family history and his own personal experiences to a phrase that you repeat several times in the biography? You you speak of Melville's black consciousness. Oh uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. What is that? Yeah, well, um, I think that's uh, that's a very important. Um, uh, question, uh, Carl. Um, generally speaking, the, the biography pursues different strands of consciousness. So, for instance, with the art prints and so on. So, so where does Melville get his sense of aesthetics? Um, where, where in the life do we find that happening? Or uh, with regard to Augusta, where, where in the life do we actually see Melville forming sentences? And, and what is that like? Um, 
But with black consciousness, um, I, uh, we, we, we know uh, Melville has, has a tremendous reputation um, uh, with a, a variety of uh, dispossessed readerships. Um, from the beginning, uh, when Moby Dick was published uh, early on in the early 1850s, 1851, soon after, one of the first person who was not reviewing the book, but one of the first persons to read and quote Melville uh, was the, um, uh, the um, uh, uh, black abolitionists. And, um, and, and, and I think that's a, a, a remarkable revelation that he was yeah. almost immediately appealing to this and uh, 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 to this particular uh, segment of, of dispossession. Basically, a black consciousness is his uh, is Mel Melville's empathy for dispossessed peoples. And I put that in the plural because it's not just uh, African-Americans, uh, enslaved people who were dispossessed, but office workers, female factory workers, sailors of every kind as laborers. And, um, uh, and you, you think of Bartleby and, um, uh, and to a certain extent, what I see happening in Melville is an early on development of uh, this empathy. And where did he get it? How did he get it? So I started taking a look at where were the African-American populations um, as he was growing up in, in Manhattan, in various places where he lived. Um, African-American theaters down the street from where he lived. His uh, uh, first school, what we would call a, an elementary school, but where he was uh, learning to become um, his very own uh, self um, was just two blocks away from the um, uh, African Free School on Crosby Street in in um, in, Man uh, in, um, in Greenwich Village. So uh, uh, and 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 the very person who would later grow up to be quoting. Um, uh, Moby Dick went to that school, so mm -hmm. you know these these were kids who were sort of in separate schools, but walking the same distance to get to those schools. So it was things like that that I wanted to to consider. I, I looked into well when they moved to Albany, what was um, the density of African American population up there? And of course, you have to remember that the state of New York was a slave state until 1827. Yeah, remarkable. 1827. Melville was eight years old. So, you know, there were some formative experiences going on there. And he very likely witnessed the parades on Independence Day, 1827, and also in 1828, because the celebration went on for a year um, of African uh, emancipation in the state of New York, also New Jersey. So um, that's just a, a little bit of, of the starting point of what I sure. call uh, Melville's black consciousness, but I, I follow it through um, uh, as he made various travels, first to Liverpool, and then uh, a year later um, going out, uh, out whaling uh, and eventually ending up in the U.S. Navy 
in a four-year period where he was associated with African-Americans. And so, you know, the, the biggest African-American presence in Moby Dick, of course, is the black cabin boy, Pip, um, who um, um, uh, almost drowns and, therefore, and then goes crazy. Um, and by becoming this kind of lunatic going around uh, making mystical comments, mystic comments and prophetic comments on, uh, on the shipboard, on board ship, um, uh, has a profound effect on the crew. And um, I found that this, um, this character, um, and I, don't, I think I'm the first biographer to really talk about this, uh, was actually based on on um, a, an African American shipmate on Melville's first whaling boat, who did the same thing, who who jumped from a from a boat um, in in an encounter with a whale and almost drowns, but and that's all we know. But it's an extraordinary story, and he he just his observations, his sensitivity to his environment is, is just remarkable. Um, yeah. On the one hand, he is writing out of his own experience, but I was also fascinated when you said that, you know, the crew that he puts together for Moby Dick is actually more multicultural than, than the ship he sails on. Absolutely. There are a yeah. lot of transformations that go on to it, not to mention the fact that I think somebody did a count of all the, of all the crew members and it's something like, uh, close to 45 different people that are are supposed to be on board that ship when in <laughs> fact there had there were only 26 yes <laughs> and uh, but <clears throat> as uh, and some of them uh, uh, we've been able to link back to actual people uh, on on that first whaling ship but but uh, pip is is really profoundly the most uh, the, the 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 one transformation that we can make make real interesting observations about sure. um, because the what i found was that um you know uh, the john the name of the person um the, the, the shipmate was named john bacchus and um and he he was a, a diminutive person because he, melville describes him as little the little black um mm. and uh so we know that he was, but he wasn't wasn't a boy like Pip, you know. He wasn't a a, a young uh, adolescent. At at uh, at least he was a, a an older adolescent and probably a younger man, uh, a young man, just just of short stature. But um, why? I wanted to pose the question: Why would? And I think this is biographical. Why would Melville transform this real life person? From uh, a black man to a black boy, and uh, and of course that raises all kinds of concerns about infantilizing um, black people, yes, especially yeah. black men. So I wanted to say, well, um, I, I'm not trying to get Melville off the hook uh, uh, in any kind of way, but <clears throat> but his treatment of Pip elsewhere is is always a process of of getting the reader, he specifically addresses the reader and says, you know, look at this person. He was brilliant. He was black, but blackness has its brilliancy. That's mm -hmm. you know, almost a direct quote. And, <clears throat> and so what he's trying to do elsewhere 
is to develop Pip out of the stereotype, uh, the menstrual stereotype, and into a real authentic personhood. And so uh, I, 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 I sort of wanted to resist the idea that he is being merely um, fa- uh, falling onto Jim Crow stereotypes with Pip. Yeah. And that's I, interesting. I mean, this, and yeah, yeah. It, it uh, Melville's, you know, was rediscovered in the 1920s. Yes. Um, and uh, that's part of the Harlem Renaissance, so to speak. That is, it's oh, yeah. the same time. He's, he's, he's writing from a sensibility that, in a sense, the culture catches up to. Well, uh, and, and, and Harlem Renaissance, uh, everyone in the 20s were just uh, yeah. uh, head over heels about Melville because suddenly here was a person that, that the culture had basically forgotten who was making remarkably forward-thinking, cosmopolitan, egalitarian, pro-democratic, pro-people, pro-labor kinds of statements. And um, the biggest lament was, well, you know, um, um, you have to read Moby Dick and, and <laughs> we'll just pick that up. And they, you know, they made two movies uh, yeah. and yeah. so on. And so yeah. Although the, well, yeah. it, it Walker, just really, it, yeah. and you're right, the Harlem Renaissance people were equally as, uh, and, and sort of the sons of the Harlem Renaissance, the sons and daughters of the Harlem Renaissance, like Ralph Ellison, were just oh, yeah. major Melville fans. So um, I, I think the thing, just to get back very briefly to Bakker sure. being transformed into Pip, what I, what I uh, the way I reasoned through it was uh, how, well, where's the empathy here for this, this fellow? And so what, what, what Melville does is he transforms adult black male Pip into a 12, 13, 14-year-old black cabin boy. Yes. And, and in other parts of it, uh, of Moby Dick, you see that what happens to Pip happens to Ishmael. Ishmael mm. also gets bumped from his ship, from his boat, and is left um, uh, out at the very end in his left um, hanging, I mean, uh, swimming around in the middle of the Pacific, um, doesn't go crazy the way Pip does, but still the connection there is absolutely solid, although you have to reread it to find that connection. So what the connection seems to be for me is that uh, Melville was putting his 12-and-a-half-year-old self, the boy who lost his father, and put that element of dispossession into the framework of an African-American. And I think in some ways, um, the relations between white American liberals and African-Americans, um, and, and this is all classes actually. Yeah, marvelous. Is, is, all, is, is kind of played out there. Here's the white male writer who has uh, suffered a huge trauma empathizing with the most traumatized human beings in American culture. Very good. Yeah. And that's what I mean by black consciousness. Um, how, how he made, how he was able to make that leap is a story that can only be told biographically. That's right. Before we um, end this, and I hate to end it, 
uh, <laughs> it, it's been fascinating and I know we could go on and on. Um, I did want to uh, top my own review of your book, which is on the Simply Charlie website, uh, uh, my review of your first two volumes. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should end with your giving us just a little bit of a preview of what's going into volume three. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, uh, the thing about uh, Melville's life is that it really has three parts. And uh, the first part is the most adventurous part, how he grew up in Manhattan, in Albany, and goes to Liverpool, and then he goes whaling, and he uh, ends up in the Navy, and he's in Peru, and he's in uh, he, he jumps ship in, uh, in, in the Marquesas. He lives in Tahiti. He lives in Hawaii. <laughs> and all, I mean, you've got a lot of stuff to write about. And I had a, it was a tremendous experience for me um, researching all of these different venues. Um, um, all but Peru, I have visited myself. Uh, and place really is a, you know, I think is a very important part of uh, of the of any biography, but but in in these first two volumes in particular, um, which culminate with the publication of Taipei, Melville's first book, which is about his adventures uh, in the Pacific, and in particular, jumping ship and uh, hiding out in the Taipei Valley, a remote valley in in the Marquesan Islands. And uh, it was a tremendous success. And so uh, the, the two volumes end with uh, the, the tragic demise and death of his brother Gansevoort, but also the uh, incredible public, uh, uh, publication of Taipei, which really put Melville on the map. So part two of Melville's life is this 10-year period between 1847 and 1857, maybe we, it could, it'll extend into um, um, the uh, early 1860s and the Civil War, when uh, Melville makes a, another set of transformations. He doesn't, he doesn't travel that much. He goes to Europe two times during that period, 1849 and 1857. But um, he basically, in, in this 10-year period, uh, writes 10 books and 16 short stories, essays and reviews. He was just going uh, nuts, becoming a, a, a major professional writer and, and was very present in, in all of that. And that's what uh, um, volume three is going to be dealing with. Not the, not the adventures of how Melville learned to write his first book, um, but the, the transformations of his consciousness as he wrote from book to book, because all of them are different from each other. No two of them are quite alike. Um, and um, it's not just Moby Dick. So uh, then in 1857, he goes off to Europe again and, and spends several, several months uh, touring um, Europe and the Holy Land. And uh, so he's in Greece and he's in Rome and he's in Jerusalem. And uh, I've, I've done personal studies of, of all of these. I've followed Melville's uh, journals, travel journals. 
and what what he did in Rome, for instance. I I, I spent a semester in Rome in 2014 tracking his his daily uh, steps and uh, and writing them up. So I I uh, uh, this whole period of of, of furious writing that Melville does from Typee to the to Moby Dick to the Confidence Man, including Bartleby the Scrivener and Benito Serino, all of that writing culminates in this transformative period of of travel, which really has a lot to do with uh, his subsequent writings. Now, my publisher is insisting that I, because I made the horrible mistake of writing two volumes, um, <laughs> however, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like uh, Tristram Shandy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wait a minute. He, it, 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 it culminates with Type P, the, the, his first novel. Well, the, you know, the, the two volumes are constantly time traveling. Uh, to all of Melville's writing, as you as you read the two volumes, um, there's it's it's loaded with with references to to his later works. Um, but um, my publisher wants me to cram the rest of Melville's life um, into into volume three, and I think I might be able to do it. But um, I had originally imagined four volumes, so that the fourth volume. Um, uh, would cover um, this post-European uh, travel period, and this is when he based, he turned he transformed himself into a poet, and so that that final cha- uh, that final section, um, which m- most biographies um, discount, yes, um, uh, it's just a long period of. Uh, of of uh, of poetry writing, some of which is epic length, and some of which is is our, our little haikus almost, uh, or sonnets. Um, it culminates with Billy Budd, and I've done a tremendous amount of work on Billy Budd, um, and 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 his manuscript revisions. You know, that's one thing that we haven't talked about, and I'm not yes. saying that we spend more time, <laughs> more of your Saturday morning, Carl. But yes. Uh, um, I, I found that um, the work that I've done in studying manuscripts from back in the early 1980s to the present, and I'm still working on it, um, every little revision is, <clears throat> is like a flash hole into the dark consciousness of Belleville. You can see him changing his mind every time he crosses out a word and puts, puts another word in there. And I want to make that kind of stuff come alive. Yeah, that's that's a good mm. that you you do that in the first two volumes, and it's very convincing. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. And well, it's been, it's been a delight to talk to you, John. We could go on for hours and hours, as I suggested before, but maybe we'll call it a, a halt at this point. Absolutely, that's and, fine. Um, bon voyage with that third volume. <laughs> uh, who knows? Maybe it'll turn out to be four anyway. Well, you know, um, it. it uh, We'll see. We see. We'll see how people uh, receive. Yes. Uh, the first two volumes. It's uh, everyone that I've I've forced into reading sample chapters has always been uh, over the years, including yourself. Yes. Um, I have been very positive about it, and um, and and to you know, and and I hope it will get reviewed. Uh, um, you're the first, and uh, and I'm delighted by. Uh, 
your enthusiasm and support for, for what great. I do. That's great. Okay. We look forward to more, John. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Carl.